Got it. Okay. All right. Hello, Aaron. Hi, Leslie. It's <laughs> good to see you again. It's really here good to are. see you again. Here we, are, here we are for part two. Here we are. Yes. I'm so glad to be able to talk to you some more about this because it's just such a, such a rich topic and there's so many aspects to analyze and discuss. So um, I'm delighted to talk with you about it again. Yeah. And I, so I, so maybe what we can talk about today, I mean, maybe we can think about doing this in two parts that one of the things that, that we talked about in our last um, talk was, you know, some difficulties that you had in, in interaction with a professor that sort of ended with, you know, you with tears and, and mm -hmm. sort of with you being, um, with at least the, the the suggestion in some ways that you would cause some emotional turmoil and that um and and with sort of a a nasty note on your evaluation and when I went back and looked at that um I you know it, it left me feeling like you know there's probably a lot of people who've had very similar experiences to yours and I thought it might be helpful if we sort of zeroed in on um, what was, what's going on in interactions like that and why it's so hard to have a conversation with someone who's kind of a, who's not, um, who's not engaging in good faith around questions of social justice and, and to sort of suss that out. And how do you tell the difference between a good faith discussion and a bad faith discussion and then how do you respond to it so I, I thought maybe it would be good if this sounds okay for you because there's there's also a very you know there's an important conversation to be had about what's done with language but there's another conversation about what is done from bad faith social justice types who are trying to use rhetoric in a particular way. And um, the way I think about this, uh, and it's probably I, I've read someone at, at some point who has said this, and I just don't quite remember who, but that, you know, different kinds of approaches to discussing important topics could be likened to a game. And so at, at universities, um, what the game that we are supposed to be playing or uh, is the truth game. Mm -hmm. And what, what we are supposed to be doing is we are supposed to be subjecting different ideas um, to tests of empiricism and skepticism for purposes of refining ideas. And that, that sounds really dry and boring, um, but it's really, really important and has really important implications for actual social justice. Um, and the reason is, is you could look at sort of like bad faith attempts where that happens, where, um, you know, policy is based on emotion and how badly that turns out and how like, you know, maybe genuine feelings of anger and and regret sometimes make their way into policies that aren't given a lot of thought. Mm -hmm. And so 
I, I mean, one that springs into my mind immediately is defund the police. And mm-hmm. after the after the murder of George George Floyd, uh, a lot of people were so enraged by the um, by the video of what happened that they said, "Well, we should just get rid of police." And in a lot of places, that actually happened, and you know, was touted as a you know, as, as a goal of, of sort of social justice types. And I'd be shocked if that didn't come up in at least some counselor education classrooms where Mm -hmm. police are sort of demonized. But as a result of this policy, um, they never really identified the problem in any clear way. And they never really identified the solution in any clear way. And so literally what they did is they just took money away uh, from police departments. And what happened as a result of that is that uh, the homicide rates, uh, among other types of death, among people of color and Black people skyrocketed. So, and it's because that set of policies was grounded in emotion and not truth. And, mm-hmm. and there was not enough discussion about what the trade-off is if you choose to make a policy that essentially takes money away from the police. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it might sound dry Mm -hmm. and uninteresting to say that the pursuit of truth using uh, empiricism, um, empirical evidence, and um, uh, uh, in using skepticism, which is a an inclination to initially disbelieve until the evidence makes it impossible for you to do that. And generally, and I think John Dewey said this best, to consider any policy or plan in terms of the grounds that support it and the further consequences to which it may lead. What he was talking about there was the pursuit of truth. What is your evidence? where is this evidence likely taking us? And that seems to be really missing in counselor education and counselor training these days. So, you know, it's like, how do you know if you're in a truth game or not? Um, And I think one of the ways that that comes out is that what is done in class is guided by academic virtues. And uh, three examples or four examples of those that I pulled out, and there are about 10, but one is academic humility that um, you're you in the pursuit of truth, no matter how clear it is that you are right about a particular idea, you always have to allow for the possibility that you are wrong. And that's why you see so many hypotheses that that seem so so obviously right because you're no matter how clear uh you think that you are you always have to allow for the possibility that you might be wrong and what that does is it says my idea is open to further refinement Mm -hmm. and we might believe that further testing of an idea will only make it stronger which if you have a good idea is probably the case but you have to allow at least hypothetically for the possibility that you might be wrong So academic humility is really important. Intellectual thoroughness, that you don't stop inquiry uh, with a surface level uh, examination of a topic or with broad proclamations that seem to be universally applicable. You, you, You follow 
these ideas down, down, down as far as you can. Open-mindedness is another academic virtue, which is the, the ability to consider ideas that oppose you and having faith in, in the fact that when ideas, say, during a debate are, um, uh, when they're, when they're, when, when, when these different ideas are contested within the, um, uh, within a debate that you have to allow for the, for the possibility that you might be proven wrong, but maybe have faith in the, in, in the process. If you really believe in your idea that your idea will be strengthened uh, through, through debate and then intellectual caution, which is that we don't take an idea that we would like to be true or an idea that sounds good and then make broad proclamations based on that. So you know that you're you know that you are in a a truth game mm -hmm. if you are invited to these kinds of um, if these kinds of virtues are put forth. And so you know that you know, you might cover something like microaggressions or anti-racism in class, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. the, the class would involve something like, it would say anti-racism and its critics or mm -hmm. microaggressions, the case for and against their relevance in psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and what you would not see a lot of in a truth-based scenario um, or in a truth game is learning aggressions. And learning aggressions occur when um, someone tries to impose an idea using some kind of deceit or force. And I think that learning aggressions, they always have victims and they always have perpetrators. And I can say that on occasion, I have been guilty of a, uh, a learning aggression. If for example, I become tearful in, um, in the, in the course of a story um, that I might be telling that has clinical relevance, which, you know, it's happened once or twice. I didn't do it a lot, but in thinking about this, I've done it a few times. Um, but that does absolutely nothing to help people pursue truth. What it does do is engage their emotions and it might make things a little more interesting, but it doesn't do much in the pursuit of truth. So you will see in sort of truth-based scenarios, relatively few learning aggressions where someone tries to impose an idea by, by force or deceit. So, so just to kind of sum that up and go back over that real quick, the, I like, I really, I'm learning so much right now. I think this is fascinating. These, the virtues and the virtues that you described, the four, which you said there are about 10, but the four that are applicable that you want to highlight here were academic humility, intellectual thoroughness, open-mindedness, and intellectual caution. And these kind of nest well together. It's like, it's, it's almost in some cases hard to see where one ends and the other begins, but there's also right. a little bit of distinction. There, uh, just in, a little, mm -hmm. just a little. Yeah. And like then a your, Venn diagram. Like a Venn. Yes, I can see that. And then you you are contrasting that um, with learning aggressions, and you would put deceit and force, anything yeah. that is deceitful or forceful, or uh, manipulative. Or manipulative. So in in your case of tearing up while you're telling, giving an, a clinical anecdote or description, 
that is, it sounds like that's a, kind of an unintentional uh, yeah. introduction of emotion into the story. And even it's, that would be, would, would kind of fall into that category. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's, I'm not saying that's always inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, I, and I'm also not saying that it, I, you know, it's bad intentioned, but it just, it happens sometimes uh, that in the course of talking about uh, people who have mean to, who have meant a lot to me or, you know, or talking about a, um, you know, some clinical pictures that have, um, that, that have struck me personally, that occasionally, like, I might have become just a little bit tearful. And I, I'm saying, you know, on occasion, that's probably not a bad idea, but it probably also is an insult to the learning process. Like, it really doesn't, my, my tears have no validity, I you see. know. They're... So that sets a pretty high standard for non-manipulation of the learning process and this is what this is like kind of a hygiene like a like a like an educational hygiene educational hygiene yeah Mm -hmm. that's what a wonderful term i mean i think that's what it is it's Mm -hmm. it's like just good uh educational hygiene that it doesn't if if you're having if you're intentionally using a display of emotion to try to make a point you know, that, that, I think that's an insult to the learning process and the victims are the students and Mm -hmm. the perpetrator is the person who, you know, can't either doesn't have good boundaries or can't find a better way to make the point that they would like to make, or who has no confidence in what they're trying to convey. So they try to get an idea in through the door of empathy rather than through the door of inquiry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah and so so if you're in a truth so can I ask you mm-hmm. did you did you see evidence of a truth game at Antioch was it more not a truth game or was it a mixed bag or um in thinking about my my courses at Antioch I can say that there were a number of courses that were very good and where this I I would say they fit the bill of the more virtuous yeah truth seeking process yeah. i can think of a couple in particular that were excellent yeah somewhere i don't know it felt a little bit more like you're just kind of reading and and filling out a form that were just yeah. basic courses that weren't very intellectual but you're learning what you need to learn yeah. and one class in particular and it's the one that i've really called out um, yeah. it was basically this dei training disguised yeah. as a, a as an applied psychology course but yeah. it really, it, it bears no resemblance to this truth game. Not right. at all. Yeah. And it's, it's been my observation in looking closely at the DEI and anti-racism and, mm-hmm. you know, queer theory, all the things that fall under the umbrella of critical social justice, mm-hmm. very little of it is virtuous, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, in terms of these, it, in terms of the criteria that I've laid out, which mm-hmm. exist in the literature. I'm not just mm-hmm. making them up. Um, but let's, so let's talk about what happens in non-virtuous kinds of situations are policies. Um, and I would, I would say that if, if the truth game is about the pursuit of truth in order to clearly define a problem or in order to look at, you know, 
understand the strengths and weaknesses of different ways of thinking about, say, therapy, then, you know, that's probably going to be a pretty good, that's a good game. That's what universities are supposed to do. And that's what leads to, um, you know, to people being really sharp and able, able to engage in, um, you know, very erudite uh, conversations with people with whom they disagree. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, when it comes to sort of DEI and the, and the ideas that fall under critical social justice, the truth game is not being played. A different kind of game is being played that might be called the power game. Mm-hmm. And the power game is different from the truth game because the power game is designed to, to, to diminish the power of and influence of other people to increase the power and influence of the person who is trying to, um, um, you know, convince you of something. And so in the power game, you know, and I think if we were to look through Sue's book, uh, Counseling the Culturally Different or whatever it's called, um, you would see copious use of, of sophistry or and I think you would find learning aggressions in there. And mm-hmm. what this is, is it's the use of arguments that might initially seem plausible, but that are ultimately fallacious and are used for the purposes of deceit in the pursuit of an ideology. And so, you know, one of the things that you'll hear from social justice types about equality for example, but colorblind equality is, um, you know, you might say in your your class um, something like, well, you know, I really, uh, equity sounds like social engineering. It appears to um, require discrimination of people based on race. I don't want any part of that, but I'm really excited in um, equal opportunity. So I'm geared more towards um, uh, I, I'm, I'm more geared towards uh, equality and, uh, and colorblindness. So I want, you know, I want equal opportunity regardless of a person's race. Mm-hmm. And, you know, someone who was using um, learning aggressions or, or what in the past has been called sophistry is they might, they make it, might make, make an argument that is something like this, that they would say, Colorblind people claim not to see race. If you don't see race, you don't see racism. If you don't see racism, you are a racist. Like it it goes something like that. And when you're on the other side of an argument like that, it's hard in the moment to refute. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like, wait a minute, like my colorblindness, it doesn't seem like a bad idea, but this person just made me seem like I'm awful for thinking this. And the way they did that is by using a fallacious argument that that what they've what they've done is they've treated colorblindness like it's <laughs> as if it's a, a literal thing that you can't tell the difference between someone who's one color and another mm-hmm. and they've conflated that then with not being able to see racism that's a mm-hmm. easily falsifiable argument mm-hmm. it's full of fallacies but um it's you know, that kind of thing is used all the time uh, in the power game. Mm -hmm. And um, so 
another like another fallacious argument that readers of Robin D'Angelo will recognize is, and I think you brought this up last time, it's the Kafka trap, where it's sort of like um they'll use the fallacy of circular reasoning and they'll say something like, um, your resistance of my idea is proof that my idea has merit. <laughs> you know, and so it's like you're you don't you don't you don't think that my idea of white fragility is um, a good argument. Um, therefore, you are engaging in white fragility. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you need to accept that my idea has mm -hmm. merit. I mean, mm -hmm. it's so dumb that it's yeah. it's almost hard to say that without laughing. And yet millions of people are taken in by, mm -hmm. um, by D'Angelo's argument because they assume that she's arguing in good faith, that she's playing the truth game when she is in fact playing the power and influence game um, and getting very rich while she's doing it. Um, so, and I, I would say like one other thing that happens in the power game is um, the use of the infallibility card. And so what this means is that a person will say that by virtue of who they are, their um, their their take on a uh, you know a, a certain situation automatically gains status as as established truth, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so you know so it might be like um, I identify as X and I have experienced Y. Therefore, um, you know, Z is true. And it, it's like when somebody does that, there's inquiry ends because mm -hmm. the person has presented a point of view that is infallible. And it's, and, and so where that comes out are, you know, terms like, terms like lived experience are, are a version of this. And it's mm -hmm. kind of like lived experience, like I deal with every single day and it, it's really important in the context of honest to God therapy. I talk mm -hmm. with people every day about what their lived experiences of, of different things are. And we sit down and we, um, we talk about their lived experiences and, and then we, we subject their, their lived experiences to, um, to inquiry to, to, uh, and, and, uh, and then they decide, you know, is my lived experience an accurate reflection of who I am or, you know, how I want to be or, or whatever. It's up to the client. But, it, you know, actual therapy is the examination of lived experience in the pursuit of truth, whatever a client's truth happens to be. Mm -hmm. And it's really important in a therapy context. But in an education context, it's not it's it's not important at all because there's there it, it doesn't add anything to the pursuit of truth mm -hmm. and in fact if it's used as a method to shut down um debate or mm -hmm. to intimidate uh uh you know people who may disagree with a person's point of view mm -hmm. uh then it's it's an insult to the pursuit of truth and yet that seems to be a regularly occurring um, component of 
the power game as mm -hmm. it as it often occurs in like DEI trainings and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it really shuts down inquiry because it puts the onus on the person who has some disagreement to almost be attacking someone's feelings. <laughs> right. Yeah. That, yeah. that you, that, that, and because there's during the power game to a certain extent, I think there that people who are in line with the ideology that they're interested in, um, they are encouraged to not make a distinction between their person and their ideas. Mm -hmm. And so and so an, another way that the power game works is that there is an expansion of the concept of harm mm -hmm. using that logic that there's no separation between my ideas and my person. Mm -hmm. um, therefore, if you um, don't believe my ideas or you critique my ideas, that's not just hurting my ideas, that's hurting me. And that seems to have gotten a lot more traction than it really should have in counselor education, you know, programs and, and, and counselor training. And so that's, that's probably like, I think it's really important that if people are in that context and they're like, none of this seems right. This doesn't really seem like a discussion or geez, I'm listening to this and I seem to feel guilty, but I'm not sure why, mm -hmm. you know, the chances are that you're not in a truth game, you're in a power game. And that, that non-virtuous non methods are being used to try to get you to think in a particular way. Mm -hmm. And so the power game in contrast to the truth game, as we're seeing it now in these DEI trainings and in these courses that are disguised, yeah. DEI, DEI in disguise, you yeah. would contrast that. Um, it, it's rife with the learning aggressions. It's just, yes, it's right. just full of learning aggressions and it's right. full of this coercive and yes. uh, manipulative behavior. Yeah. And, um, and you said it's designed to diminish the power diminish of, the power diminish the power of of whoever doesn't agree with the ideology mm -hmm. diminish the the power of that person to express themselves or put put an idea or perspective out there for for consideration to 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 test against mm -hmm. other people's ideas it's just kind of shut down yeah. and i i actually think and I know we're, we're a little bit short on time here, but I'll, I'll just put this in. I actually think, I think there's a cow, there, there's a power game type B. Okay. And, and what I think that is, is it's the pseudo therapy game. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit about this, how a lot of these trainings and classes have a therapeutic component and that seems not to be good mm -hmm. and uh and i did a little bit of thinking like why is that why is that not a good thing mm -hmm. and the the reason i think is because it's not real therapy like you you don't go to school to go to therapy and therapy always good therapy anyway mm -hmm. always involves the pursuit of truth what are your true feelings about that you're experiencing in this relationship How, what are you really arguing about um what is you know how what who are you you know and mm -hmm. you subject all of those questions and what you're trying to narrow down 
you're trying to pursue a person's truth about themselves and about their relationships and so forth. So true therapy is always about the pursuit of truth. It's not about unconditional validation all the time and so forth. And sort of in the, in the pseudo therapy game, um, therapy, you use sort of a, a pseudo therapy session, but what you try to do is you engage the empathy of the people who are involved in the game uh, in, in the pursuit of an ideology. So, so you, you engage their empathy so that they'll be, um, so that they'll be more likely to suspend uh, disbelief, um, uh, you know, and, and so, so you might, you know, someone who was really, who was using this would probably like have a class, what collectively watch a video of what happened to um, George Floyd mm -hmm. and then say, you know, something like, um, who here thinks that um, counseling should be apolitical? Mm -hmm. and, and so what, what we're playing there is, is sort of the, the therapy game. And so in, in the pseudo-therapy game, though, the concept of harm is, is expanded in such a way so that anyone who doesn't buy into an ideology can be perceived as being someone who harms. And anyone who hears an idea that they don't like can be perceived as having been harmed. And there is, and so, you know, so, so someone might say, um, you've just noted that the Cato Institute has found that 70% of Black people and people of color do not find the most common, commonly touted microaggressions offensive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a professor might hear that and say, I just want to stop the class for a moment and acknowledge the harm that's being done to the people of color and Black people in the room. Like that's a pseudo-therapy uh, kind of tactic. Another would be sort of where people are encouraged to um, express anguish in the service of pursuing or, or getting involved in an ideology. So mm -hmm. people are asked questions like, you know, can you, I don't know, can you, can you describe um, your feelings of shame about being white? you know, or, or mm -hmm. something like that. It's, mm -hmm. it's, an, it's what you're trying to do is start an, an empathy process. And then in both the pseudo therapy game and the power game, um, two things happen that contested ideas, ideas that are, have not been subjected to any kind of inquiry, ideas that are sort of global and, and don't have much in the way of evidence are repeated over and over and over and over again as if they're true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I, I guess there's just one thing that that they're repeated over and over and over again as if they're true. So- Well, and in the pseudo-therapy game, as you describe it, you kind of get this emotional buy-in yeah. from the participant or the, the student or whoever it is yeah. that, that sort of draws the manipulation it even deeper right and seems seems incredibly machiavellian you know you're really using these people and and it actually sounds it, it's 
it sounds like the class I'm describing. And it also sounds like what therapists are being asked to do with their clients. So there's, I that's just so wicked. True. I think yeah. both of those are true, which is why I wanted to talk it in this follow-up, but I, I think well, we're just about I, out of time, but yeah, I, but I think this is such a good, this is, it's nice. Cause this is concise. And, yeah. and I, I think this is going to be a short one where people yeah. can go back and listen to this a couple of times if they want to, because what you've done is to just really lay them out succinctly and yeah. clearly. And so we've got, you know, as you've described in the truth game. Yeah. And then the power game and, and power game type B, which is the pseudotherapy game. And these processes are things that people are going to be able to really recognize as having experienced for themselves on, you know, one side or the other, or maybe both. So I think so. And I want to ask, mm -hmm. I want to ask something of people who view this, who, who view this video, and I'd, I'd like to challenge them with something and, and I'll, I'll look at answers really carefully. Mm -hmm. um, how could you politely and respectfully object if you find yourself in a power game or a pseudotherapy game? Like, what would you, if you find that you're in there, what would you say in a respectful way to try to, to try to move things back to a truth game? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I would love to hear people's ideas on that. I, I, I've been thinking about that a lot, but, you know, maybe that'll stimulate some conversation for a future video. Yeah. And I hope if, if people want to respond to that, your, your email is up on the screen there kinspotter.aaron at gmail.com or they can write can them in the, in the comments yeah, yeah please yeah but I if, encourage you, that. Yeah, if you want to remain anonymous i'd be mm -hmm. very interested to get answers you can i'd well. love to see these in the comments too and um and this is this is great so thank you for laying this out and we'll call this part one of this conversation and yeah. then we'll pick it back up and and hear more and i'd love to hear your analysis of how these are applied and how how you would challenge that and and go okay. from there all right. right. Well, thank you, Leslie. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron.